Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Some people have a charisma that can get them incredibly far in life. And some choose to squander that and use it to inflict evil upon the world. On July 8th, 1942, a man was born who was, in his early 20s, referred to as the Pied Piper. A man who could get anyone he wanted and chose to use that to take human lives. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Charles Schmid was born on July 8, 1942, to an unwed mother who adopted him out to Charles and Catherine Schmid, the owners and operators of Hillcrest Nursing Home in Tucson, Arizona. From the beginning, Charles had a difficult time bonding with his father, whom his mother later divorced. Despite this, Charles was an overindulged only child who wanted for nothing, and despite his poor grades, used his good looks, charms, and athleticism to excel in other aspects of school, like gymnastics. After helping lead his school to the state championship, Charles quit the team in his senior year and, just before graduation, got suspended for stealing tools from the school shop. Deciding he was done with academia, Charles began living on his own quarters on his parents' property and was given a $300 a month allowance by his doting parents. He had no rules once he moved out, no one checked on him, and with a disposable income at his fingertips, spent his money on a car and motorcycle and his time at Tucson's Speedway Boulevard picking up girls and drinking with friends. And he knew how to make himself more desirable to those women. A short man by nature, Charles, whose friends called him Smitty, would wear cowboy boots and stuff newspapers and flattened cans in the bottoms to make him appear taller. He wore lip balm to accentuate his lips, pancake makeup to make his skin smoother, dyed his hair jet black to make himself look meaner, gave himself a fake mole on his cheek, and would even stretch out his lower lip with a clothespin to make himself look more like every girl's dream man, Elvis Presley. He lied about almost everything, claiming he had a terminal illness to get a girl's sympathy, bragged about his sexual exploits to all the boys, sprinkled salt in his eyes so tears poured out, telling girls that he was overwhelmed by their company and beauty, and claimed he had mafia connections to create and maintain his tough guy persona. 
And all of this seemed to work, earning him the nickname Pied Piper for his ability to use his charisma and looks to garner quite the following of teenagers in the Tucson community and became somewhat of a folk hero to the teens who didn't feel like they fit in with their strict parents. Teenagers who would later help him keep his dark secrets. In his friend group was a boy named Paul Graff, who spent time in a reformatory after a robbery resulted in a man's death. Paul would later move in with Charles and watch as he cycled through his many female conquests. Another graduate of that reform school was a boy named Richie Burns. And once he and Charles met through Paul, the trio became inseparable. When Charles was 21, he found out that he was adopted and Catherine gave her son the contact information for his biological mother so he could meet her for the first time. When he did, she told him, I didn't want you when you were born or even before you were born, and I don't want you now, get out, and slammed the door in his face. This level of rejection affected him in a way that no one understood, though for many, it was difficult to discern what was fact and what was fiction when it came to his life. Regardless of how true it was, something inside of Charles went dark after that, and on May 31st, 1964, After a day of drinking with girlfriend Mary French and friend John Saunders, Charles suddenly announced, I want to kill a girl tonight. I think I can get away with it. So he told Mary to persuade her new friend, 15-year-old sophomore Aline Rowe, to go out with his friend John, but she turned down the invitation. But Charles wouldn't let that stop the plan he already had in motion. He called Mary over and over again to try and get her to convince Aline to come along, but the young girl continued to refuse, saying she had an exam the next morning. Finally, after consistent pressure, Aline decided to go, but said she would only leave after her mother went to sleep. Her mother, a recent divorcee, who had just moved her children to Tucson the year before for a fresh start. Once they collected the young girl, they drove off to a desert near a local golf course, where Charles and his friends liked to hang out and drink. They walked for a while, finding the perfect spot to stop, and after a minute or two, Charles told Mary to go to the car and get a radio, and he joined her on his walk. It wasn't long before Aline's screams rang throughout the isolated desert. He told Mary to wait in the car while he ran down to check on what was happening, and found John struggling with Aline. He told his friend to cover her mouth so she could not scream anymore, and Charles came up behind her with a guitar string to bind her arms. The young girl begged the boys to leave her alone and asked why they were doing this to her, to which Charles responded, Mary wants us to do. She hates you. They pulled her down to the wash where Charles instructed John to remove Aline's bathing suit, which was nearly impossible given her bindings. So they untied her, forced her to lie down, and Charles told John to go ahead. Her crying was too much for him to even kiss her, though some stories claim this was because he was gay, and was finally told to take a walk, but it was not too much for Charles. When John was called back, Aline was back in her bathing suit and staggering towards the wash. The boys followed her. Charles picked up a rock, tried to give it to John, but he refused. He was then instructed to go back to the car, and then Charles fulfilled his desire to take a human life. When John came back, his pal Smitty was covered in blood and they helped him to bury her body. When they got back into the car, Charles told the other two, we killed her and told Mary how much he loved her. When Aline's mother discovered that she was missing, she of course informed her ex-husband. 
He told her that he had a dream that she was murdered and left in a desert, a fact that she relayed to police. They said they could not act on parental intuition, but did start a missing persons investigation. Because all three teens were working together and provided the other with an alibi, Charles Schmidt did, for quite some time, get away with murder like he predicted. Police soon dubbed Aline Rowe's disappearance as a runaway case, though Norma Rowe would do all she could to fight for her daughter. And rumors started to swirl amongst the local teens about the trio of murderers. Still, no one came forward, at least not at first. One of Charles's many girlfriends was 17-year-old Gretchen Fitz, daughter of a prominent Tucson heart surgeon and community leader. He became infatuated by her from the moment he saw her and followed her back to her upscale neighborhood, where he would return soon after carrying an armful of pots and pans. Pretending to be a traveling salesman, Charles soon dropped his facade and told Gretchen that he had concocted the whole lie just to meet her. She was flattered and very quickly fell hard and fast for the local bad boy. They started dating, though he had also given cheap engagement rings to Mary and another girl so they would share his finances with him, and the misfit from the good family felt as though he was the perfect man to spend the rest of her life with. At some point in the relationship, he, of course, regaled her with the details of Aline's murder, and she, like everyone else, kept his secret. That was until he broke up with her. Wanting to maintain their relationship, Gretchen threatened to go to the police with what she knew, saying she was going to turn over the diary that she had stolen in which Charles wrote about Aline's murder in great detail. Realizing he had to do something about Gretchen, Charles decided to throw a series of parties while she was out of town, and when she found out and showed up at one, the couple began a heated argument in the middle of the party. While she was screaming at him, Mary French came over and demanded that he marry her and be a father to the baby she was pregnant with. At that point, Gretchen too said she was pregnant and wanted to know what Charles was going to do about it. When he turned down the elopement that she had planned, she was furious and stormed out. That same evening, August 16, 1965, Gretchen took her 13-year-old sister out to see an Elvis Presley movie. The pair never returned, and Gretchen's car was found behind the Flamingo Hotel near Speedway by the private investigator that her father had hired. He had no idea that Gretchen's boyfriend, tired of her venom and worried about her going to the police with his diary, had strangled both of the girls to death. While all of this was happening, the private investigator continued his work and found traces of gravel and mud on the floor of Gretchen's car, as well as 60 extra miles on the speedometer that showed her car was clearly driven somewhere further away and brought back into town. In her purse, also found at the scene, were ticket stubs from the movie, her keys, and a business card from one of Charles's failed businesses. The police got involved and found out that two girls matching the Fitz sisters' description were seen hitchhiking and picked up by a car heading towards Mexico, where a number of witnesses swore the girls boarded a bus to Hermosillo. So the search began in Mexico, but nothing solid ever came up. So like Aline Rowe, the girls were dubbed as runaways. But a few people knew differently, including his friend Richie, whom he had brought to the haphazard burial site out in the desert. His friend, knowing he had already killed at least three young girls, started to grow fearful that his own girlfriend was in jeopardy. Richie eventually had to flee to his grandparents' home in Ohio because his girlfriend's parents said he was harassing her, trying to keep her safe. And while there, he told his grandparents, 
all about his murderous friend in Tucson before flying back to help with the investigation. Thanks in large part to Richie, Charles Schmid, the Pied Piper of Tucson, was arrested on November 10th, 1965. Brought into the station, Charles was confronted with both tapes of Richie's confession and Richie himself, but maintained that he was innocent of any crimes, saying he would prove it when he was brought to trial. At a preliminary hearing, both John Saunders and Mary French stood trial for the roles that they played in Aline's murder. John pleaded guilty, got life imprisonment, while Mary agreed to plead to a lesser sentence of seven years and both agreed to testify against Charles. The media went wild with details of Charles's carefully curated life, and F. Lee Bailey, famed celebrity attorney, was brought in to consult on the case. In the end, Charles Schmid was found guilty of first-degree murder for the Fitz sisters and sentenced to death. And in 1967, when Aline's remains were finally found, he pled guilty to her second-degree murder and was given an additional sentence of 50 years to life. After fighting for her son's innocence, Catherine Schmidt and her second husband were forced to live in poverty after his legal fees cost more than what they possessed. One last act from the doting mother. After several failed attempts to escape from the prison, Charles finally made his way out on November 11th, 1972, when he and fellow triple murderer Raymond Hudgens escaped from Arizona State Prison. They held hostages on a ranch in Tempe, ate a Sonic, and then went their separate ways before being captured and brought back to prison, where Charles remained until March 10th, 1975, when he was stabbed 47 times by a fellow inmate and passed away on March 30th from his injuries. Though, according to the stories, all of this is hard to prove definitely because his body was stolen from the morgue shortly after his death. His mother had his empty casket buried in a prison cemetery, fearing his tombstone would be defaced if buried in a public one. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on July 9th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.